But hey, we are studying the life and ministry of Jesus, as I said, through all four of the Gospels, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all at the same time. And uh, we're using a harmony, which is something that somebody takes uh, all four Gospels and they try to put them in order chronologically. Now, we can't be 100% sure that that's exactly because exactly the right order, but the idea is each, each author of Scripture wrote their testimony, wrote their account of Jesus' life, and some of them with different priorities. So uh, they tell them maybe in a little bit different order, just like if your kids came home from school, and the, imagine you had twins in the same class, and they both came home and told you about their day. They might tell you about the same things, but they might tell it in a different order. And you'd be like, which one's right? Well, they're both right. That's just, that's how they decided to tell the story. And that's the same with the gospel. So we're attempting to put them all in order. And we're in our 49th week of this. We started it a couple years ago, took a break, and we started back up again at the beginning of the year. Well, today we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 11 and starting in verse 20. And so I'm gonna go ahead and read the text and then we'll pray and then we'll jump in and uh, look at it together. Then he, verse 20, Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, And you, Capernaum, will will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one except the Son, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, Jesus said, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray, and then we'll unpack that text together. Father, thanks for Jesus. Um, Lord, the words he speaks today are, are some harsh ones, and uh, ones that, that may be hard for us to hear. There's also uh, just a whole depth of, of theological truth in, in parts of the text that we'll go through this morning. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd help me uh, to be clear and uh, that your words would be my own, and uh, that it would result not in just our heads being puffed up or even our hearts being pierced, but our lives being changed to turn to Jesus and be more like him. Um, I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He would take your word, Jesus, and, and twist it and use it against us and to accuse us and to tempt us. Instead, Holy Spirit, work powerfully in our hearts. I pray that you'd work through me and thankful that you delight to do it so often. I pray you would again today. And uh, we pray all these things through Jesus. He's our only hope. Amen. So we start off in verse 20 and Jesus says this, or the text says this about Jesus. He began to denounce the cities 
where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Well, this is right after last Sunday. If you, if you look back in the text a little bit, it's Matthew's account of what we called the parable of the brats last Sunday. And kind of this idea that you need to not be childish, but childlike. That's what Jesus calls us to. And, and Jesus then right after this, in line, in the same line of thought, he starts to denounce the cities where he had done all of his mighty works. He, he, was, he had called them childish last week, and now this week we see him actually just dial it up a little bit more, and he pronounces judgment on them. And, and these passages are some of the passages that some people have a hard time with, and they just they throw the, the Gospels out because of, because their idea of Jesus isn't really the Jesus of the Bible, it's the Jesus of fairy tales, that he's just always a nice guy, and he loves everybody, and, and does he love everybody? He does. Was he a kind, nice man? He was, but he's also God and he's just. He also speaks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. And he speaks about judgment often. And that's what we see this morning. Well, he starts to denounce these cities. And why did he do it? Well, because they didn't repent. They didn't repent. Now, you've probably heard that word before, but if you're, if you're new and you don't know what that means, you've just heard it in, in terms of the church, repent just means to turn. It just means to turn. That's all it means. So, so they, didn't, they didn't turn from their way to Jesus. They didn't turn from believing what they thought to what Jesus taught, right? It, it, repent means to turn, and ultimately it's turning to Jesus. And, and yes, Jesus was a nice guy. Yes, Jesus was kind, and he did all kinds of miracles in some of these cities that we're going to see, and all kinds of good works and good things. But what they missed out, the reason he starts to denounce them, I'll, get, I'll give you a clue ahead of time here, he starts to denounce them. They didn't repent because the thing is, the reason he did those things is so that they would repent. God's kindness, Paul writes, is supposed to lead us to repentance. See, it, it's not... Jesus doesn't just bless people to bless people. I mean, he does that in a good way, right? But he does it so that we would repent. That's the motivation behind it. He loves us so much. He blesses us so that we'd get a taste of his goodness and then turn fully to him in repentance. Paul tells us this in Romans 2. He says, he, I'll just quote a small part of it. He talks a lot more about it than this. But he says, do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? There it is. The reason God is kind to you, the reason God delays judgment, the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is he desires for more people to turn to him in repentance. That's why. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. But, but he said, Paul says, because of your hard and impotent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says when we assume God's kindness, when we take it for granted and we just keep on in our sin and we refuse to repent and turn to Jesus, you know what we're doing? We're taking rocks and we're storing them up. We're adding them to the pile of God's wrath. We're adding them to the pile that God's gonna use in a sense to stone us with his wrath. And, and when I fail to repent, I'm just, I'm just throwing another rock on the pile. Oh, that's okay. He has, it's okay. It's not a big deal. Rock on the pile. It's not a big deal. I got time. He's still coming. The rock on the pile. And it just, we're storing up wrath from God. And it's coming. And when we see his good works, his glory, his goodness, and we reject it, that's all we're doing. We're storing up his wrath. And that's where Jesus is going here. He says this then in verse 21. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. 
Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe, woe is an expression of grief or regret. And it often is um, an exclamation right before judgment. It's, it's used by prophets all the time in the Old Testament. And usually it's, it starts out at the beginning of explaining how much somebody's gonna suffer. So when you see woe, woe, bad news is coming. Woe to you, right? Sometimes a group of people would speak it of themselves in the Bible. Woe to us that, that this army's coming upon us or, or different things like that. And Jesus says, woe to you. And listen, if Jesus says woe to you, that, that's, a, that's bad news. That is bad news when Jesus says woe. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Well, first we've got to ask ourselves some questions here. What are the mighty works that were done first in Chorazin and Bethsaida? And where even are these little towns? I've never heard of them before. Well, if you look through the Bible, you start searching for Chorazin, you're going to find out this is the only place it's mentioned. It's the only place it's mentioned here and then also in Luke chapter 10 when Luke gives the same account of Jesus pronouncing this judgment. It's the only time it shows up in the New Testament. But Chorazin was a small town, a small village, about two miles from Capernaum, which was kind of Jesus' home base. It was, the, it was the town on the Sea of Galilee that Jesus chose for his headquarters. So to think of it in terms of geography for us, in terms of distance, like if, if Milford was Capernaum, we could be in Chorazin right here. That's about how far it is, about two miles. You could walk there in an afternoon. wasn't a big deal. People went back and forth between the two towns all the time. There was a synagogue in Chorazin. You can still go visit it today. And it's likely that Jesus did all kinds of miracles in this nearby small town next to his home base. You're like, well, why isn't it written down? Why didn't somebody write it down? Well, John tells us in the end of his gospel that he says in uh, John 21, it's one of the last verses of his gospel. He says, I suppose if, here's the things that Jesus began to do and teach, but I suppose if everything was written down that he did, there wouldn't be books enough to contain it all. So, So the authors picked and chose which miracles they talked about, and we don't have any record of miracles in Chorazin, but based on Jesus' words here, clearly some happened there. So how about Bethsaida? Well, Bethsaida means house of fishing in Hebrew. And Bethsaida is another two miles past Chorazin, kind of to the north and to the east of Capernaum. So if this is Chorazin and, there, and Milford is Capernaum, well, then Syracuse is maybe Bethsaida. And, and they kind of, but the, it doesn't quite line up because they kind of formed this triangle if you look it up on a map. And they were close to each other. And in Bethsaida, we do have some record of some things happening. It was near there that Jesus fed 5,000 people and healed multitudes of people. Mark tells us in chapter 8 that he restored sight to a blind man there. And either way, these are are towns where Jesus would have been. He would have done miracles. He would have done teaching there. And clearly he did because he said if the things done there had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. So what about Tyre and Sidon? Well, Tyre and Sidon were, were Old Testament cities and were enemies of the Jewish people. And they did all kinds of wicked things. Uh, they, they were denounced by God, especially for being the center of Baal worship. Of, of Baal, not like a Baal of hay, but like Baal, a false god, right? And, and they were the center of, of some of those 
things that were happening, and they were wicked, and eventually God destroys them. Sidon was destroyed by the Assyrians in 67 BC, Tyre by Alexander the Great. Tyre's right on the sea, and if you read the account, Alexander the Great built this causeway out to this island fortress where they thought they were safe, and he took them down. But they were, they were judged by God because of their wickedness. Yet, in, in all their wickedness, Jesus says, if the things that happened here had happened there, they would have repented. And, and Jesus hearers knew how wicked they were. He, they knew of the sin that happened in those places. Think of maybe the most sinful city that you can think of for us today, right? Well, a couple come to mind that call themselves Sin City, right? And not that there's not sin everywhere else and all over the place, but, but Jesus is saying, like, if, if, if they had seen the grace here, that city would have repented. They would have repented. And in fact, they would have put on sackcloth and ashes. These were symbols of humiliation, grief for sin, and repentance. Sackcloth, think like a burlap sack, like just this rough camel's hair. And then sometimes in their repentance, they would even put ashes on themselves. And the idea was, it doesn't matter what I look like. It matters what my heart looks like before God. It was, again, an outward symbol of an inward reality. They were repenting before God. And that's what's happening. And listen, when God is good to you, you need to repent. If he's being good and gracious to you and you have sin in your life, you need to to repent. I need to repent. The psalmist writes, David says that a contrite spirit, a broken heart, God, you will not despise in Psalm 51. God longs for us to have a broken heart before him and to turn to him in repentance. And Jesus says, if the things that happened here had happened there, they would have repented, but you never repented. And he goes on. He says, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. See, notice right away, first he says, but I tell you, when Jesus speaks, listen, (laughs) right? He says, it will be more bearable for them than for you. Well, why would that be? Well, because Bethsaida and Chorazin rejected Jesus. They saw God in the flesh. They saw him for who he was, and they rejected him. They had access to the Messiah, and they rejected him. These people had, had, had less opportunity to believe in Tyre and Sidon, so they would be judged less harshly than the ones who had. You want to hear some maybe bad news? <laughs> if you've been coming here week after week, year after year of your life, decade after decade, hearing the gospel, hearing God's word taught, and you just ignore it, woe to you, it will be worse for you than if these things had been preached in Tyre and Sidon. That's what Jesus says. Because you had access to these things and you heard them and you saw them over and over and over and you you hardened your heart to them and you ignored them. Woe to you. Repent. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. And when Jesus says more parable on the day of judgment, do you know what judgment he's talking about? He's talking about judgment in the end. Jesus is talking about hell here. If you refuse to repent to turn to Jesus, then guess what? Instead of turning to Jesus saying, Jesus, you died on the cross for my sin, you paid my penalty, you took the punch of God's wrath for me, you're saying, you know what? Forget that, Jesus, I'll take it, bring it on. And you take God's wrath and you make that choice by not choosing to turn to Jesus. You're like, why would Jesus talk about hell? He's a nice guy. Well, he's also God, he's just. And you need to know it. Hell is not something made up. Hell is real. It is very hot. It's very horrible. And eternity is a long time. 
Jesus keeps going. Then he singles out his hometown. He says in verse 23, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? See, Capernaum, Jesus chose Capernaum as kind of his headquarters. That was his hometown. That's the one he chose. He set up shop in Capernaum. And he's like, Capernaum, do you think that just because I'm here, that somehow that's, that, that just that automatically wins you favor before God? Like, like you're just gonna get exalted to heaven and everything's gonna be great for you just because I live here. He says, no, you, you won't be exalted to heaven. You'll be brought down to Hades. Hades is a word used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the Hebrew word Sheol, which means the place of the dead, the dwelling of the dead. It's, it's a reference to death and to final judgment. And, and oftentimes you could make the argument that it's, it's synonymous in this case with hell. You, you'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Now, we, we didn't see a lot of miracles in Bethsaida recorded. We didn't see any in Chorazin recorded in the Gospels, but we have all kinds of miracles recorded in Capernaum in the Gospels. People being raised from, from death, people being healed, uh, blind people giving, being given their sight. Jesus did all kinds of great miracles in Capernaum. And he says, if those had been done in Sodom, Sodom would still be here today. Well, do you know what Sodom is? Sodom and Gomorrah, have you heard of those two towns? They're in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Uh, when you think wickedness, you think Sodom and Gomorrah. The wickedness in Sodom was so great, I'm, really, I'm, I'm not gonna go into detail here because it's, just, it's simply not PG or even PG-13, to be real honest with you. It's awful. Go read about it yourself in Genesis 18 and 19. It, their sin was so wicked. I mean, you, you know it's bad when they make up a name for sin based on your town, right? Sodomy, that's where it comes from. Because the men were sleeping with men and the men were doing awful things and, and messengers of God come into town and they want to have them and use your, you know what I'm talking about. And it's wickedness. And Jesus says, yet if the things done in Capernaum were done in Sodom in this an unbelievably horrid, wicked city, it'd still be here. Because what happens with Sodom and Gomorrah is God destroys it with fire from heaven. And if you're, if you're it sounds awful. I mean, it's like this, the description sounds like this tar, basically, this hot tar and fire just drops down from heaven and burns it up, and it's gone. That was God's wrath on them. He said, that would still be here if they had seen my miracles. Jesus says that despite the wickedness of Sodom, Capernaum's gonna face worse punishment. Looks what he says. Clearly, he's dealing with hard hearts here. He says, I tell you, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you, Capernaum. It'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. They're like, we didn't do what they did. No, but you rejected Jesus. That's the idea. They rejected Jesus who was in their midst. Now, when it says more tolerable, you know, I kind of ask the question, are there degrees of punishment then in hell? Well, the Bible would seem to indicate that, yeah, there are. There's, uh, the, the more knowledge you have, the more accountable you are, the more judgment you face. Now, at the same time, it's like, it, it's still hell. It's still awful. It's like saying, which Brussels sprouts taste better? They all taste terrible. <laughs> right? <laughs> hell is awful. So I had to make you laugh, bring it back a little bit. But hell is terrible. 
Don't laugh at that. It's awful. And whether it's a little bit of punishment or a lot, it doesn't matter. It's forever. And their sin is worse because they rejected Jesus, and it's the worst sin you can commit. In fact, it's the one sin you'll never be forgiven of. Verse 25, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Before we go there, clearly in these passages leading up to this, Jesus is dealing with people with really hard hearts. They had seen his works. They had seen his miracles. They had hung out with him, and yet they rejected him. And it reminds me of a passage from Psalm chapter 95, verses 7 and 8, where the psalmist is writing about the Israelites as they're in the wilderness. And the writer of Hebrews actually quotes this in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. And, and the psalmist writes, he says, uh, for today, he's writing to his listeners, if you would hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like they did in the wilderness. And he goes on and he gets to verse 10 and he says, and God basically declares, because they've hardened my hearts, they will not enter my rest, but my wrath is on them. They won't enter my rest. They won't enter heaven. They won't be saved because they've hardened their hearts. There's a certain sense where maybe some of us, we've hardened our hearts for so long. We're like, that's ah, not a big deal. I'll, I'll turn to Jesus when it's time. It'll, it'll be all right. You know what? There may not be a time for you. And there may, may be a sense in which God finally hardens your heart once and for all and just gives you over to it. Today's the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Turn to him in repentance. Listen, that's a hard saying. That's a hard thing to hear, but you need to hear it. Turn to him. He loves you. Jesus is a nice guy. He offers to save you but he demands you to turn to him and trust him and believe in him for who he is. And, and it worries me in, in the culture we live in because we live in the Bible Belt. I don't know if you noticed that. There's like, I, if you added up all the churches in, Milf, in, in a little town of Milford and Syracuse and North Webster and Leesburg and all the churches that are out in the country, you'd probably have a church for every you know how many, I mean, it's like unbelievable the, the number of churches per capita in this area. Woe to us. If we would have that much exposure to the gospel and never repent and never turn to Jesus, I believe it'll be worse for us and Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment based on Jesus' words here. Repent, repent. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you've revealed them to little children. We're on to something better. Jesus is being thankful. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. We're done with this judgment talk, right? Well, maybe. He says, look what he's thanking him for, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. This is strange when you read it at face value because you go, 
You mean God's hiding things from certain people? I thought he desired that everyone would be saved. Why would he hide things from some? Well, notice it's from the wise and understanding. And this isn't saying that Jesus is hiding himself from the smart and (laughs) well-educated. He's saying he's hiding himself from the wise and understanding of the people who think they know it all, who think they're okay, who've hardened their hearts and say, I I don't need that Jesus stuff. Trust me, I've I've had it my whole life. I'm good. Just trust me, it's okay. It's okay. They're, They're wise and understanding in their own eyes. Jesus says, I thank you that you've hidden these things from them. That they wouldn't, in other words, this idea that they wouldn't be raised up and have a reason to boast in themselves about their own knowledge, but instead that you've given these things to little children. Now there's, this is a good, in a primary text on Jesus' sovereignty, his being in full control of who responds to the gospel, who receives the gospel, who would turn to him in faith. You need to know if you feel that pit in your stomach right now, that that has nothing to do with Josh or anything about me. That has everything to do with the Holy Spirit working in you and the sovereignty of God using my words in a miraculous way to turn your heart. And it's it's not me doing anything to save you. That's the Holy Spirit working in you. That's the work of Jesus in you. That's God's sovereignty. And if, if you came and you said, yeah, I heard this message from Josh and, and Josh saved me. Oh, that'd be bad news if I'm the one to save you. You're not gonna make it far. <laughs> no, 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 it's not me, it's Jesus. And there's a certain sense when we, when we hear this, there, there can be, and we'll talk about this in a second, there can be some degree of resistance saying, hold on, wait, what you're saying here, Josh, is that God chooses me that he's the one in charge, so I don't get a choice? Well, in some sense, yes. That's what the Bible teaches. But there's also a sense in which you do get a choice. Now, how do those two things go hand in hand? You know what, I don't know. (laughs) But the Bible teaches both of them very clearly, and I believe them. And God is sovereign over your heart and sovereign over your life to call you to himself, to reveal himself to you. And some he's chosen and he knows will respond to him. And some he knows you will not respond no matter how many times. And you'll be like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah and those who simply rejected him. Now, in the one sense, we can say, oh, that's just not fair. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. There's, there's a sense where God's sovereignty is so encouraging because it means to me that God's plan is in motion. And I can't do anything to stop it. If I preach a bad sermon some Sunday, guess what? God can still use that. Because <laughs> I, I preach some bad ones. If I preach a good one, guess what? That, that's, that's God working in me and using me. And I have no reason to boast or have confidence in myself. That's, that's the work of God. And no matter what happens in this world, no matter who, this world, no matter who's elected president, God's plan is in motion. He's sovereign. I don't need to worry. He's in total control. Not only that, but it's not on me. I'll be honest with you. If it was on me to come here every Sunday and preach a sermon that would draw people to salvation, and it was on me that people would get saved, I'd quit tomorrow. Kill me now. That, that is such a burden. I'd go crazy. And I'll be honest with you, like coming up to Sunday, most Fridays and or Saturdays, there's a, there's a time that happens where Hannah can tell you, I, 
I tend to be a little more down. I tend to check out a little bit. I just feel this weight and this burden like Sunday's coming and what do I, what do I have to say? I just feel so inadequate and so unable to communicate God's truth. And yet every Sunday he shows up and he uses me. But if it was all on me and I didn't have the confidence of knowing the Holy Spirit's gonna be there to help me, he's my helper, he's my guide, it's not on you, Josh. Kill me now, (laughs) take me now, I'm done. God is sovereign, he's in control. And Jesus says it's it's the will of the Father, his gracious will that, that he reveals some things to some and hides things from others. He revealed them to little children, building right back on his parable of the brats, of being childish or childlike, right? He delights that it's revealed to little children. And the idea isn't just that God reveals himself to children, which he does, but that he reveals himself to the childlike, to those who would approach him with a pure faith, a pure trust. Do you want God to show himself to you? Start trusting him like a child would. Enough with the, I'll believe it when I see it. Christianity doesn't work that way. Trust me, you'll see it when you believe it. (laughs) And you'll see God's sovereignty in you, working in you and and drawing your heart towards him. Jesus says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God's will was to reveal himself to the simple. His kingdom is upside down. The last to be first, the first last. The simple made wise, the wise made simple. All things, Jesus says, then have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Again, we, hear, we see a sense here of Jesus' sovereignty that he, he chooses who he's gonna reveal himself to. There's a sense where if, if Jesus wouldn't first reveal himself to me, there's no way I would ever seek him. There's just no way. Doctrinally, this is the doctrine of election. And I'm not gonna get into all of this this morning because there's different opinions on it. And there's, but I'll just tell you this. I believe in the doctrine of election because it's in the Bible. And defined like this, the way that God graciously reveals himself to people and calls people to be part of his kingdom. He chooses us. Just like when you go to the election and you cast your ballot, you choose who you want for president. Jesus chooses you. He chooses you. See, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still his enemies, he died for us on the cross. Before I ever made a choice, he chose me and showed himself to me. We won't get into all the details there, but let me just show you a couple passages that speak of this. Psalm 139, if you got your Bible, maybe turn back to Psalm 139. And we see a sense of God's sovereignty and him choosing us. Now, again, is there a sense where we respond and we choose him? Absolutely. But ultimately, it rests on God. Now, how that works itself out, I can't explain it fully to you because I'm finite and God is eternal. When God sees time and he chooses, I mean, you ever put a DVD in? I think of this, how God views time. God sees it all in one stretch. You ever put a DVD in your DVD player? And you go to the scene selection and all the chapters pop up on the screen. And you can see like little pieces of the whole movie all the way through all in one piece right there. In a sense, that's how God sees time. He's separate from it. He doesn't have to watch it all the way through. He, he just sees all the scenes all at once. And so in a sense, in him choosing us before all things from outside of time to us 
I can't explain exactly how that works, how he chooses us and we choose him, but ultimately he's in control. He's outside looking at it. But look at Psalm 139. This is, this is just one of my favorite Psalms. Oh Lord, the psalmist writes, you have searched me and known me. God knows you, he knows me. You know, Lord, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before words on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. That sounds like sovereignty, doesn't it? He's in control. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge. You're like, how does that, how does that work? How does God know like, What's gonna happen tomorrow? And yet he's in control of what happened yesterday and he's in control of what happens tomorrow, even though it hasn't happened yet. He knows the words that are coming off my tongue next Sunday, he knows them. How does he know? Well, I don't know. The psalmist agrees, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I don't get it. But it's amazing that you're in control. It's high, I cannot attain it. You're not gonna get your mind around the sovereignty of God, but you need to trust it. He's in control. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven into the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. I could keep going. God is in control. He's in control. And if you feel that pit in your stomach, you feel him calling you to him, that is him. And he wants you to trust him and to turn to him. Another example of this, Jesus teaching these things is in John chapter six. We'll go here quickly. You can study it more on your own. But in chapter six, uh, Jesus says that he's the bread of life, that he's the bread of life. And so in verse 41 of chapter six, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. He goes on as he teaches these things. He says, I've come, he says, how do you now say I've come down? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And when they heard this, verse 60, many of his disciples heard it and they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? That's a hard thing to understand the, the, the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty. And how does that play out in my choosing him and him choosing me? That's a hard saying. But I'm telling you, it's true. And in our text this morning, Jesus says that the only one who knows the son is whom the son's chosen to reveal himself to. So then he says this, and here's what I would commend to you. If you hear these next words and you hear them and, and you feel yourself being drawn to Jesus, I would commend to you that's the work of the Holy Spirit being done on your behalf, drawing you. It's not anything Josh is doing. It's not anything I'm convincing you of. It's, it's God's spirit working 
beforehand in you. Hear these words of Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. That word come, he means believe. I'll give you rest. This idea of rest is the idea of of heaven, of salvation. Come to me. Here, we finally got to the fill-ins, those of you who are a little OCD and you're wondering, when are we gonna do this? We're gonna do them all at once. You ready? Here's what you need to know. Number one, everyone is called. Everyone is called. Jesus says to everyone, come to me. Come to me. And many are called, but I would argue that few are chosen. It's not everyone Jesus just taught us that he actually reveals himself to in a way that they would turn to him in faith that he's actually chosen to respond. Now, again, I I don't want to get in an argument about all this stuff, but sometimes we hear this, and again, this idea of did God choose me? Did I choose him? And we go, well, if God chose me beforehand, then what do I need to evangelize people for? He chose people, and I don't need to share my faith because whoever he chose, clearly they're going to respond. And that's why I don't like this doctrine because it's just an excuse not to spread the gospel. Nonsense. Nonsense. Jesus says, preach the word. You have no idea who he's chosen. You have no idea. Preach the word. Even if you disagree with me on that point, we can agree on that. Preach the word, right? It's not an excuse, and it's not an excuse just to do whatever I want, because, you know, Jesus saved me, he's sovereign, I'll be saved, I'll be fine. No, it's not. That's just bad theology. That's just being disobedient, and maybe you aren't saved to begin with. Everyone is called, but few are chosen. In other words, not everyone believes, only some believe. Not everyone will respond. I, I can give you that from empirical evidence, right? I get up here week after week, month after month, year after year, preach the gospel. Not everybody responds. In fact, most people don't. It's like, why do you keep doing it, Josh? Because I don't know who's going to respond next. And God's told me, preach the word. So that's what I do. And they need to hear the gospel. Not everyone will respond, number three, but those who do, Jesus gives rest. Those who come to Jesus get rest. So as we close, I'm gonna go rapid fire here just through a few things about this rest that Jesus offers to you. And I would make an appeal to you, turn to Jesus if you never have. And if you have turned to him, turn back to him if you've wandered from him. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This idea of a yoke is the idea of, uh, Jesus was likely a carpenter and he would have probably made some of these often in, uh, in his vocation where it's, it's this wooden uh, yoke <laughs> that goes across the neck of, I know, great description, Josh, that was good. It goes across the neck of two animals, right? And, and then it's attached to a piece of farm equipment and then it, it pulls it pulls the plow, pulls the wagon, pulls whatever it is. And Jesus says, my yoke, it's an easy pull. It's an easy pull. Because you're yoked with me, and I'm pulling right alongside you. You know, you still need to pull. There's still going to be some work there for you to grow and mature. But trust me, it's an easy one. 
It's like, Randy, when you sell the big tractor. <laughs> it makes the work easier, right? I mean, it, it, his yoke is easy. That's what Jesus says, my burden is light. And yet those who were religious in Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida who, who saw Jesus and said, mm, I reject that, their burden was heavy. And, and they, they were religious people. And they burdened people with, you gotta do this, do this, do this, and then you'll find God's favor. Jesus says, no, just, just trust me, follow me, repent, turn to me, and you have God's favor. Just repent, just turn. And you'll enter my rest. Come to me, quit laboring, keep, quit striving, and enter my rest. And so here's the aspect of Jesus' rest that he offers. Number one, it's ceasing from self-effort. It's ceasing from self-effort. Now here's what I mean by that. I don't mean that you quit trying to know Jesus more, that you quit trying to grow in your faith, right? It means you cease trying to earn God's favor on your own. You cease trying to be good enough on your own. Like, you see this with so many people, like their life falls apart and they go, oh, it must've been something I've done. So, so I'm just gonna try harder and then it'll get better. I'm just gonna try harder, I'm gonna do better and, and then it'll get good. It might for a little bit, but ultimately, no, it won't. Your self-effort isn't gonna change your life. It's not gonna earn you favor with God. Jesus rests says, just quit laboring. Let me do the work. My yoke's easy. I'm the one who saves you. I'm the one, and by the way, even in your walk, in Colossians it says, just as you received him, so walk in him. So if I think I can only come to Jesus by faith, by his grace through faith, well, guess what? I'm only gonna grow by grace through faith. As I, I seek Jesus, as I seek Jesus. The second thing, it's free from, being free, I would say, from whatever disturbs. Like this sense of rest, you know, you think of a mom who's home with her kids all day. You give me no rest. You give me no rest. You're just always disturbing me. What is it in your life that's just always nagging, always disturbing, you never get rest from? Jesus says, you know what? Rest from that. Focus on me. I give you my rest. It's freedom from what disturbs. In other words, it's peace. It's Jesus' peace is what we're talking about here. A third aspect of his rest is to be settled or fixed, to be fixed or settled on Jesus. You know, if I, I take my Bible and I rest it on the podium... It's fixed there, it's settled there, it's not going anywhere until I pick it up and move it. When I rest in Jesus, I'm fixing myself on Jesus. I'm settled there. And no matter what the storms come, it's okay. It can just blow around me, I'm settled. And when I come to Jesus, I find rest and I'm able to just be settled and fixed on him. And now I still go through storms, right, in life, but the storms don't come in me. I just go through the storm because I'm fixed and I'm settled. Another aspect of it would be this, depending fully on Jesus. To rest on it is to depend on it fully. All of you, you're resting right now on a pew. You're sitting there and you are fully dependent on that thing to hold you up. Which thankfully we've, they're old and we've resecured some of them, so they should hold you. But you're dependent on it. And when I rest in Jesus, you know what I do? It, see, I could look at a chair and I could say, yeah, that's a good chair. 
I believe in that chair. I trust that chair will hold me. But do you know when I've rested in that chair? Do you know when I've really come to that chair and put my faith in that chair? It's when I put my bottom in that chair and sit in it and I rest in it and I depend fully on it to hold me. Here's the call to you this morning. Jesus says, woe to you if you would hear all these words over and over for your lifetime, yet reject him. It'll be worse for you than the most sinful of cities in the Old Testament because you've rejected your only hope. He says, instead, let me reveal myself to you and come to me. Come to me. Quit laboring, quit trying on your own. Accept my grace. Come to me. Quit just looking at the chair and saying, that's a good chair. I believe in that chair. Sit down in it. Depend on him. Rest in him. He'll give you his rest. He will. Let me pray. We'll sing. We'll call it a morning. Father, thanks for Jesus. And um, Lord, it's a, it's a huge passage this morning that we worked through and honestly could probably be broken up into a handful of messages. Um, but I pray that, that my words, um, Holy Spirit, were helpful, were uh, encouraging to us to repent of our sin, to turn to you, that we wouldn't uh, be like those who saw all of Jesus' works and just continually rejected them and hardened their hearts. Let us not be like that. But instead, might we come to you You've clearly shown yourself to us. You've called us. Let us respond and come to you in faith and trust you and receive your rest to cease from our self-effort to be right with you, to cease um, striving on our own, to be settled and fixed on you, to, to have peace in you and to depend on you for our salvation and for our hope. I pray for those, Father, today who hear my voice, uh, who've never trusted you, that today might be the day that you work in their heart in such a way that they would turn to you in saving faith, and that they'd become part of your family and repent. And I pray for those of us who've known you for a long time, that you'd remind us to repent and to grow to know you more. Father, thanks for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen. This time we'll take our offering.